Just a quick note as we get into this week's podcast with Alan Flanagan. One of the things I'd like you to note is that the audio is broken in some parts uh, of the recording. Uh, This is due to some internet connectivity issues. However, you should be able to get most of the conversation relatively smoothly. And in the case that there are any points omitted that do have importance, please feel free to ask us for clarification uh, by joining the Triage Method community and requesting um, further information there, emailing us at info at triagemethod.com or even contacting us on our social media otherwise. But other than that, guys, you should be able to get all the answers you need from this podcast. So enjoy the episode. What is up, guys? Welcome to the Triage Method podcast. This week, I'm recording with Mr. Alan Flanagan uh, rather than Paddy. So we're going to be discussing the topic of uh, nutrition as it relates to cardiovascular disease, in particular, uh, atherosclerosis and the path there to cardiovascular disease. So for those of you who have been listening to the podcast regularly, you'll be aware that the last uh, number of episodes have been focused on cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular health, both as it relates to exercise and nutrition. And so far, we've discussed things like uh, blood pressure, we've discussed basic cardiovascular physiology. So how does everything work when when things are working normally? We've also discussed concepts of uh, causality, we've discussed the atherosclerotic process. And now basically, what we're going to do is move on and talk about what role does nutrition play in all of this? And importantly, what can you actually do to minimize your risk of cardiovascular uh, disease and ultimately cardiovascular death in the long term? Because none of us want to want to die. You know, we want to live forever. That's the goal. So I'm here with Mr. Alan Flanagan. Some of you will have heard him uh, on the podcast before. He was last on to discuss the topic of uh, chrononutrition, which is an area that he is researching. So Alan, what's the story? Who are you? Why are you here? And what are your areas of interest? And also, how did you get into this interesting kind of lipids and cardiovascular disease? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in terms of who I am, I'm currently a PhD researcher at the University of Surrey. Um, and I am quite active, I would say, in the science communication realm through my website, through Sigma Nutrition as well, where people may have found me on either the podcast, um, myself and Danny are doing more regularly regularly or even a lot of kind of statements on various issues that we've been putting out over the last couple of months. Um, And although I am, in terms of my actual PhD, focused on chrononutrition, um, I think my first real love when it comes to nutrition science is cardiovascular disease um, and lipids. I see and being at a university that has some really amazing uh, nutrition scientists and lipidologists um, and I just got quite quite interested in it particularly because like a lot of people there were a number of big kind of meta-analyses that came out uh, the first in 2010 another in 2014 and another in 2015 and they formed this kind of triad of, of meta-analyses that are repeatedly cited as evidence for though there's no association between saturated fat and heart disease and like a lot of people, I took meta-analyses in nutrition relatively at face value. Um, I was kind of inspired uh, by one of my MSc supervisors to, to really look when it comes to nutrition and meta-analyses, really go, go beyond um, and look at the inclusion criteria, um, look at the included studies, consider things like the actual levels of intake in each primary study and all these, all these kind of variables we, we can dig into down the line. And I, I got quite fascinated into how you can have an area um, that 
that really appears on one level to be admired in controversy. So over the last year, that has kind of accelerated. And, and with Sigma Nutrition, we ended up putting out, a, the very first statements we put out, a series of three long form statements on diet and cardiovascular disease. One where we focused simply on blood lipids and cardiovascular disease, so the lipid heart hypothesis. Another where we focused on um, the effect of diet on, in controlled studies on specific aspects of lipids. Um, and then one on more the diet heart hypothesis, which is the effects of, of both of those preceding statements on cardiovascular disease uh, events and, and mortality. And those statements generated quite a lot of, of um, engagement and response, and in particular from uh, a very prominent member of the kind of lipid skeptic community. He eventually ended up having um, uh, a podcast with where Danny moderated a somewhat of a kind of debate conversation between myself um, and, and this, this individual. And, uh, and we had a lot of productive conversations to be very fair to my interlocutor. Um, you know, he, unlike many people in that community is very willing to engage is, is very willing to stay measured does not engage in histrionic kind of nonsense. And so it was productive. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of grown legs. I'm on the advisory panel for Heart UK, the cholesterol charity here, along with a, a number of, I, I'm really, really out of place on that panel. <laughs> I mean, it's like Professor Gary Frost, Gordon Ferns, like and then there's me. Uh, no, there's a few other people as well. But um. Find quite interested, uh, quite interested in, and more so, it's an area for which that interest is is seemingly of utility right now because there is so much, not just like mild controversy within academia, but but really loud clouding of the knowledge that we do have by people who simply don't want to accept the evidence as it stands, and will do anything they can to pick a hole, turn it on its head you know, and, and, and cast doubt on uh, what people should do from a dietary perspective for cardiovascular health. And, and that's becoming quite problematic. So the more that we can engage in this conversation, the, the more that we can kind of hopefully steer people towards the right steps to take from a dietary perspective um, to manage, you know, long-term cardiovascular risk. Yeah, and, and one of the things you alluded to there was, was something that I brought up in the last episode of the podcast where there's basically sometimes this um, element of, of false equivalence between the types of arguments that are raised by quote-unquote LDL skeptics or cholesterol skeptics or whatever you want to want to call um, that group of people, you, you'd say. And, and what, what ends up happening is that you've got these this ridiculously large body of evidence of, uh, as, you, as you always say, converging lines of evidence, you know, that come to this conclusion related to LDL and cardiovascular disease, etc. And you'll find these, these little nuanced questions that are kind of like, oh, we're not entirely sure how this plays out, you know, all of the time with this specific profile or something 
something like that. And what ends up happening then is that exception um, is given kind of like false equivalence to the whole body of evidence. And it's like, oh, this, this refutes that, even, even though it's, it's, it's not actually addressing the, the core question at play. So without digging into to those nuances just yet, one of the things I'd like you to kind of go through is, like, where did this kind of, firstly, I suppose the lipid heart and then the diet heart hypothesis, where did they come from? Like, how did we, how yeah. did we get here? So initially the research into atherosclerosis and the development of atherosclerotic plaque goes back to the early 20th century, um, specifically a Russian researcher called Nikolai Anishkov, who was based at the SARS military hospital in St. Petersburg. And the seminal paper that he published um, detailing the development of atherosclerosis from diet was in 1913. It wasn't actually translated. It was in German. It wasn't translated to English till 1981, but um, it was taken up by the, by the field. And what he had performed were a series of experiments in different animals, rats, rabbits, guinea pigs, also dogs at the time, dog lovers don't just, it was 1913. Um, and interestingly, um, for example, rats and dogs, you, you could feed them heaps of butter um, and their cholesterol, blood cholesterol levels wouldn't change. They wouldn't develop atherosclerosis. We, we know that actually that the reason for that is they have very efficient bile conversion and they actually recycle cholesterol really quickly and they don't get adverse effects. Rabbits, on the other hand, developed atherosclerosis really quickly and their cholesterol levels shot through the roof. Some of the criticism around the time was, well, rabbits are herbivores and you're feeding them you know, butter. <laughs> so you're going to get that response. But essentially, to cut that aspect of the long story short, what Anishkov showed were, were two things that ultimately stand today. One is that the driver of atherosclerosis, of the development of plaque in the arteries, required high levels of cholesterol, what we now know as LDL cholesterol at the time that didn't differentiate. So there was two things. One is that high levels and that cholesterol itself was, was sufficient to drive this process, elevated blood levels of cholesterol. That, that research didn't gained ground, but, but not as much as, as one might think. And a lot of it was based on the distinction that, well, look, rabbits aren't humans, which is fair enough. Fast forward to the end of the Second World War, and we, we have a dramatic shift in, in human diets as a result of the second post-Second World War period. Um, the Second World War gave birth to the kind of industrialization of, of food production, and newly affluent societies were in a position where people had purchasing power for foods uh, that were previously relatively rare. So depending on someone's socioeconomic status pre-World War II, um, foods like meats and eggs um, tended to be, and even, even milk, tended to be more expensive. And so while milk was a little bit more consumed, the ability to have fairly daily and ubiquitous consumption of animal fats hadn't really started to occur in diets until post, the post-Second World War period. The... Diet and lipid heart hypothesis are, are related but separate. The lipid heart hypothesis comes from Anishkov's research and was developed further. And the lipid hypothesis, lipid heart hypothesis, is that elevated levels of LDL cholesterol 
are causative of atherosclerosis. Well, we say causative now, but the hypothesis was that elevated levels of LDL cholesterol drive the production and development of plaque in the arteries. The diet heart hypothesis is based on the role of diet in that relationship. So the diet heart hypothesis hypothesized that elevated levels of saturated fat and low levels of polyunsaturated fats were the main driver of high blood cholesterol levels and then contributed to heart disease. And that was supported by a large cohort study in the late 1940s in Framingham in the United States. And it was also supported by a number of other um, big long-term cohort studies, the most famous of which is known as the Seven Countries Study. And the Seven Countries Study was a cohort study based in seven countries in 18 different regions. So within certain countries, you had different cohorts in different regions of the country where their diet might differ. So in Croatia, for example, you had a cohort that was based in the coastal region of Croatia, eating a kind of more seafood-based unsaturated fat diet, and you had an inland cohort that were eating more animal fat. In, fin in Finland, you had two cohorts. They had relatively similar diets, only varying in the actual amount of saturated fat. And then you had, for example, a Japanese cohort where they were consuming five or seven percent of their diet from saturated fat and, and only about 20 percent from total fat. So the seven countries study was, was, it gets a really bad rep in the low carb community as a piece of epidemiology for nutrition. It was excellent because it had huge contrasts in the exposure of interest, which was saturated fat. Through the 1950s, a body of tightly controlled metabolic ward studies where every morsel of food fed to patients was controlled, manipulated the effects of different dietary fats and came up with a very clear picture that emerged through that time frame that the single biggest contributor to raising blood cholesterol levels in humans was animal fat or dietary saturated fat. The greatest reduction in blood cholesterol levels would be seen when vegetable fat, specific, specifically polyunsaturated fats, replaced that saturated fat. And that blood cholesterol, and here's, here's the interesting thing about the, sorry, the dietary cholesterol thing, saturated fat diet, but its effect in isolation was very little. And ultimately this generated what's known as the Keyes equation, which still stands to this day as a predictive equation for the effects on blood cholesterol of, of different quantities of saturated to polyunsaturated fat. Um, and that established kind of uh, relationship, what they call the P to S ratio, polyunsaturated to saturated fat ratio, that was established in these metabolic ward studies in the 1950s and, and is as clear as day in those studies, again, still stands in 2020. In fact, it, it stands in every line of evidence that we have. So, the lipid heart hypothesis really came from those early observations in animals that perhaps it's the, 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 the cholesterol that gets elevated that then drives atherosclerosis. That started to also be evident in humans through the 1940s, late 1940s and early 1950s, that actually the, the common denominator in heart disease patients was elevated levels of cholesterol above other factors, although other factors are involved. 
And as a result of that big kind of nascent understanding of that relationship, the emphasis through that same period on the dietary variables very much focused in on the LDL cholesterol raising effects of saturated fat. And it's important to contextualize that because of the dramatic increase in the consumption of animal fats in the diet, this research was being conducted at a time when in Western industrialized countries, 19 to 20% of their total daily energy from saturated fats. The Finnish had the highest level of saturated fat in, in the world, which was up around 24% of total daily energy. Um, the UK was 19 to 20, the US was 19 to 20, and you had, you had countries that had gone through this transition. Perfect. So, so basically what we see is that there is this strong relationship at the kind of population level and the, the mechanistic and the, the interventional level of higher saturated fat intakes and atherosclerosis and hence cardiovascular disease. So I suppose the next question um, related to that would be, have there been examples at that population level where we've seen uh, a population go from very high saturated fat intakes to reductions over time? And, and how has that influenced cardiovascular disease incidence? In the UK, for example, um, I don't actually have Irish data for this. It's something I should probably look into at some point. Um, but assuming a relative equivalence in terms of the dietary pattern in, in, in Ireland and the UK in the 1960s or 70s, um, you know, 20% of total energy reduced over a 30-year period to around 12 to 13 percent and in the uk there's been a halving of cardiovascular mortality however in modeling the effects of different interventions that have contributed to that reduction in the uk the most significant is the reduction in smoking population-wide um, and dietary saturated fat has and reductions in population-wide blood cholesterol levels have contributed to that. But that's quite similar to a lot of other European countries where people reduced smoking, they started, you know, there was an increase in, in vegetable consumption or these various factors. The best example that isolates saturated fat and blood cholesterol levels is the Finnish population. In the early 1970s, and through this period that we're talking about through the 50s and 60s, the Finns had the highest rate of heart disease mortality in, in the world. Um, average life expectancy in, in males and, and the average time of death from heart disease was like 50, 55 years of age. And in the population, which was heavily agrarian, heavily dairy-based, um, butter was, the, was one of the main sources of, of energy. And dietary saturated fat content contributed up to 24% of total energy. So the Finns enacted in 1972 this really targeted public health intervention to reduce cardiovascular mortality, and they targeted four risk factors, blood cholesterol levels and blood pressure, both of which diet and exercise were going to have a role, smoking, and BMI. And if you fast forward to 2007, 8, 9, 35 years later, BMI in the population had increased, smoking levels hadn't changed, blood pressure had come down a bit, but heart disease mortality had been reduced by 80%. And of that reduction in heart disease mortality, the biggest mm -hmm. contributing factor was the population-wide reduction in blood cholesterol levels. 
And that came from a really targeted program to swap butter for, say, rapeseed oil and to reduce population-wide saturated fat content, which came down from 23-24% to around 12-13%. So, you know, a dramatic reduction population-wide that directly correlated to reductions in blood cholesterol levels when these other factors that could have had a role like smoking and BMI were actually kind of controlled for uh, in a way because they remained unchanged. So that's the most powerful isolated example of the success of this public health intervention independent of factors like smoking or body weight that could have an influence on the outcome. And the thresholds that we have now currently for say 10% of energy you know, they are evidence-based. This concept of the threshold of intake is, is so important to the whole discussion because people talk about nutrition in absolutes. Like, oh, it's saturated fat and heart disease. And it's like, yes, but in what context? We're looking at a population where they're already consuming 13 or 14% and they're comparing it to 10%. You're, you're not going to see a difference between those groups it's too small, it's too narrow a variability in the exposure of interest. So the, the real risk for dietary saturated fat was always at kind of thresholds of intake of say 16, 17, 18%, particularly 18, 19% and higher. And the reason that this is important is because we have so many people banging on a drum that we should take all the limits off. We've already seen percentage increases in the quant in the amount of energy from saturated fat in western countries and it's a direct result of this type of messaging that people are getting confused about and i think it's really important that yeah sure if you're consuming an average diet right now in the west and it's 12 percent of energy from saturated fat you are not at the risk that you would be if you were consuming 20 percent. that's that's accepted that's not controversial but it doesn't mean that you should go pouring on the bacon and butter to try and get back to 18 to 20%. And so, yeah, what, what I was going to ask with that in mind, with the, with the threshold, um, I suppose like sometimes when we think of, of kind of foods or nutrients in that kind of good, bad context, people think about totally minimizing them. So in terms of that, that under 10% threshold, if, if I was someone who, you know, like myself, uh, I, you know, consume, let's say I like dark chocolate every now and then I like some steak, whatever. And my, my saturated fat intake, let's say is eight or 9% on average. Is there, is there likely to be a benefit of me saying, actually, no, let's go zero tolerance and cut it all out. Or should people kind of feel comfortable once they're within that threshold of intake? Yeah. I think people can feel, can feel comfortable once they're in that threshold of intake. Um, even dietary patterns that we consider particularly heart healthy, whether that's the Mediterranean diet or the kind of traditional Japanese diet, um, both of those diets vary in the total fat content. So the Japanese diet's quite low in, in overall fat and the Mediterranean diet's higher in overall fat but they both have saturated fat. Well, the Japanese diet would be lower. And that comes as a byproduct of eating some of these foods. You know, cured meats are a, a big part of um, the diet in, in uh, certainly the Iberian Mediterranean diet. The, the problem is calling the Mediterranean diet is that it's not exactly homogenous. It does differ from country to country. But yes, you know, you will, you will be in a realm of intake where you know, risk is, is, is low and minimized. And the idea that people have to get it to zero or 2% or 3% is, is actually 
from a food-based perspective, rather impossible. If you had 2% of energy coming yeah. from saturated fat, it would really indicate that your diet's nutritionally inadequate because it still comes as a byproduct of, of all foods. So it's really the total diet that matters and the balance of these fats and fat subtypes. And if you were eating those foods in the context of a diet where the majority of your fat is coming from oily fish and oils and nuts and seeds and avocado and this kind of thing, then, then no, these foods in and of themselves are not harmful. And in fact, you know, with dark chocolate, there's an argument that actually the polyphenol content in and of itself, you see good evidence for dark chocolate and blood pressure. Um, and you see, um, you know, evidence of a different effect of say dairy. You know, there, there are nuances in the conversation. What we're trying to steer people away on away from is this idea that you can actually just eat all the animal fat that you like, yeah. or you could base your diet from a fat perspective solely or predominantly around animal fats. And both of those are positions that are entirely unsupported <laughs> by any level of evidence. Yeah, I, I think that is interesting because you do kind of have to to think about it in terms of the overall composition of the foods that you're consuming and whether or not there are additional health promoting or health detracting um, components of those foods too. Because obviously, if you're thinking about your overall health, like it's not just LDL, as, as important as that is. Like if you were to think about things like uh, comparing something like eating loads and loads and loads of bacon every single day versus eating uh, a mixture of something like, all right, you have a, a ribeye once a week and then you have some dark chocolate right. and then you have dairy and cheese, et cetera. There's, there's health promoting elements to those foods and there's health detracting elements. So, I mean, right. if you're, if you're just thinking just saturated fat, then you mightn't be thinking, Oh, what about colorectal cancer risk from processed meats? Or what about maybe anti-diabetic properties right. of dairy intake, et cetera. So, right. So yes, yes, the, the yes. food, food yeah. matrix. And, and one of the things that, that you mentioned there or that you, I know you've mentioned in the past is kind of moving towards um, food-based guidelines, um, I mm. think, from a health perspective, because I suppose that is one of the confusing elements of, is just thinking about saturated fat and not really realizing that, you know, something like eggs or any food, really, you're generally talking about a composition uh, or a yeah. mixture of different types of, of fats. So when we do talk about saturated fats for people listening, what are the kind of most common sources and how do they vary in terms of, of cardiovascular risk, if, if that's answerable? Historically, the, when diets were very high in saturated fat, the four main food sources were red meats, and that encompasses beef, lamb, pork, but red meats generally, um, lard as a cooking fat, butter, and whole milk. Now, if we were to fast forward to now, the main contributors would be milk is still there, as is red meat generally, and essentially kind of ultra processed foods as well. So, you know, baked goods and stuff like that. Although there has been a lot of change in that in the food supply to using kind of polyunsaturated fats. But confectionery, generally speaking, would be a big, a big contributor currently to saturated fat content. But, but sticking with the foods that have been, I guess, repopularized by various kind of dietary paradigms, whether that's, you know, the paleo diet or the carnivore diet or, you know, Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee and all this kind of stuff that's really venerated animal fats again from kind of meat and butter. But it, basing the diet around those foods, their fatty acid, saturated fatty acid composition is such that, particularly for butter, it's, it's unequivocal 
from tightly controlled metabolic ward studies that high intake of those foods is going to drive up LDL cholesterol and high, high intake of saturated fat from those foods is going to drive up LDL cholesterol. What people have focused on more recently as the nuance to those foods in the context of, of dairy seemingly having a different impact. And that may be the case. For milk, however, it's important to kind of qualify that the relationship between milk and cardiovascular disease is, is much more neutral than it is positive or negative. Whereas it's for cheese, whole milk cheese and yogurt, that we tend to see the, the benefit, the positive benefit in reducing risk. There are a number of reasons for why cheese and yogurt and the whole milk fat remains intact. It's, it's encapsulated in this membrane um, and that encapsulation makes it behave different, differently biologically. There's also the process of fermentation itself, which, which kind of makes the whole food matrix um, a bit more so that the protein itself is attached kind of to this encapsulated fat. Uh, the high calcium content results in the formation of these soaps in the gut. So you don't actually absorb as much of the fat from these dairy sources. Um, you excrete more of it. Like you correctly pointed out, it's not just all LDL. So dairy products have quite a beneficial impact on blood pressure in particular. And that might be a combination of multiple aspects of the dairy food matrix, whether it's the protein content, which protein tends to have a positive impact on blood pressure, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium. So there's quite a, quite a rich um, food matrix in, in beneficial um, dietary components. Whereas you know, butter, all of those products that we're talking about, all of those components of food, um, churning removes the calcium. Um, and so butter really doesn't have these nutritional qualities that a whole milk cheese or whole milk yogurt has. And this, the same goes for steak. It, it will be high in protein. And yes, it will have iron, B12, other beneficial nutrients. But, but purity from a dietary fat perspective, it's not really giving you anything additive in terms of benefit. So I think that is an important qualifier. The hesitancy that people have in public health, it seems, for allowing whole milk dairy into food-based recommendations is because we are on this precipice right now, this tricky time where people are assuming that they can just go back to eating the steak and the butter. And if everyone just starts throwing back the whole milk on top of that, then their total saturated fat content is, is going to go up. There's a lot you have to factor in when you're messaging for the whole population. So as it stands right now, I tend to stick by the public health recommendations to consume either a skimmed or semi-skimmed milk or low-fat dairy produce generally. And that's simply because being wary of the fact that someone could quite easily significantly increase their total saturated fat content um, and you know particularly in a, in a country like the UK or like Ireland where lads in particular looking for any be able to just eat <laughs> so we need to be careful with public health messaging and, and how we convey what's an exception to the rule as opposed to the exception 
literally invalidating the rule, which a lot of people, even a recent paper by a lot of respected you know, people in the field of nutrition science, and, and almost posits that, well, this, this exception invalidates the rule. It's not. It's an exception and the rule still stands. Yeah, I, I think that point related to public health messaging is, is incredibly important because that's something that I see getting um, lost on a lot of people within the fitness industry and was certainly lost on me in, in, in previous years. Because I suppose if you're thinking like you're thinking about your position on whole milk, let's say, um, but you're thinking about that in terms of the population level, whereas you're not necessarily saying that, let's say I was working with you when you were my nutritionist and, and I said, okay, uh, Alan, I'm actually having, you know, most of my fat tends to come from salmon and nuts um, or whatever. And I'm trying to get my calories up or get some protein. And after a workout, is it okay if I have some whole milk? You know, mm. that, that's a different answer to, to different what you'd answer. be giving on, yeah. on, the, on the population level. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. If someone's overall dietary saturated fat content was low, um, you know, in that range that we're talking about and say like, you know, 8%, for example, um, and they have a steak every now and then they like their bit of dark chocolate, but, but in their diet is kind of more unsaturated fat from those sources. So if you're talking to an athletic population, an individual client, and you know what their dietary pattern is like, then yeah, you could say drink whole milk. There may be some additional benefits here for your, for your, for NPS and your recovery, but for the whole population level, the messaging is completely different. And we, we have to account for human behavior, which is not rational. So the messaging has to be careful, act all science and just start eating bacon and meat and butter again. Um, and so this could easily be a problem from a public health perspective in quite a short time frame, because in our populations with our historic food environment and, and very agrarian agriculture based uh, economies, people want to hear that message. You know, if you're a 55 year old Irish man with, you know, with, with a bit of central adiposity and, and a bit of elevated cholesterol, you want to be, you know, we, we do need to be thinking completely differently about individual level recommendations versus recommendations for the whole population. Yeah. And, and as I was saying to you kind of before we started recording, like I can relate so much to that desire for, public health guidelines just to come out and find that you can eat as much meat as you want, because trust me, like, like they're literally all my, all my favorite foods. Like I want to be able to eat as much steak and bacon and everything as I can. I want to pour a load of cheese on it and I want to cook it in butter. Like that's what I want. And I I also feel that I I can, I can sympathize with people who, like, as I said to you before, again, you you kind of have this like primal instinct, like, you know, meat is manly when you cook it in butter and that, and that makes you more manly. Like I, I get that. I appreciate the mind mindset but ultimately you have to practice like both cri- crit- critical thinking and, and cri- critical feeling as eric mm. weinstein would say is like you know mm. why do you, why do you feel what you feel and how does that actually align or misalign with what you would actually right. critically think your way to based on the available evidence and ultimately right. for me like that feeling of feeling more manly is not worth dying of a stroke or being hemiparetic from my 60s. And I think that's something that is that is lost on people, maybe until you see a family member succumb to cardiovascular disease or something, because, 
you know, you're certainly not yeah. quite as worried about, I know we're very focused on men here, but it is typically men a lot of the time who are like, I want to eat meat, you know? Um, I, I don't think there's, there's something that it promotes masculinity. If you're just, that you're thinking, oh, I'm so masculine because I had a heart attack. You know, that's, right. that's when it comes right. to bites you really, you know? Right. And we, we have to factor in particularly whatever about the UK, but with us, and our Celtic genes, we didn't look in on the heart disease risk profile with our genetic pool at all. Minor um, genetic polymorphisms that, that lead to elevated cholesterol. The, the prevalence of people with high cholesterol in our population is not a joke and in many respects is far exceeds a, a lot of other populations. So, you know, we, we need to be certainly in an Irish context, quite mindful of our, you know, unfortunate predisposition to elevated cholesterol and, and heart disease um, and, and, and be careful with our messaging accord. Yeah. So, so I suppose with, with, with that in mind, the kind of summary there for, for, I suppose, a listener, if you're a personal trainer or for someone trying to manage your own diet is realize that when population guidelines are trying to emphasize certain nutrients such as saturated fat they're not typically thinking about someone who is controlling macronutrients and calories and eating loads of vegetables and fruits and and exercising and everything and and whether or not you have an additional steak it's more so related to the foods that are likely to be consumed by a lot of the population and if we think about ireland you know the the full irish breakfast is something that's kind of almost part of our culture and everyone wants to consume and they're the the types of things that we're thinking about like i know with my own father who's had he's had you know cardiovascular events and he's someone who if he comes down the stairs in the morning and he's going to have some food like his tendency would be put a few sausages on the pan piece of white bread and and eat that you know like that's Mm -hmm. that's what he's going for he's not thinking about it so ultimately at the population level it's about that awareness of those basic decisions for people rather than like trying to deliver messaging to the fitness industry itself right 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 yeah Yeah, exactly yeah we're, we're not talking about macro tracking bros here really you know i mean because they're in charge of their diet to a way that just the gem pop isn't so yeah and and another question i have there it's quite a a specific question and it's just kind of because i i could see people wondering about this and it's if if someone is let's say if they have multiple different risk factors such as um obesity a lack of physical activity low dietary fiber etc versus someone who's very active you know great insulin sensitivity, great blood glucose control, good blood pressure, et cetera. Is there a difference in terms of any sort of response to saturated fat feeding? And I'm not talking like at the population level, but is there any mm. like um, metabolic war studies or anything on those lines? Yeah, so, so obesity, particularly central or, or visceral adiposity, the fat that accumulates kind of around the liver and, 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 and subcutaneously around, around the, the central region does contribute to a kind of change in the overall profile of of lipoproteins and of cholesterol. So what you might typically see in someone with a lot of central obesity is they have very high levels of circulating triglycerides and there's a knock-on effect remodeling. So basically LDL uh, divides essentially and into these smaller particles that are more dense they carry less cholesterol, but there's a lot of them. And then HDL, which generally we want in circulation, 
because it's it's quote the good cholesterol although in the cardiovascular sciences community they're not even considering that anymore um but it, it still serves a purpose for cholesterol recycling and hdl ends up essentially going back to the liver and, and getting broken down and removed from circulation so you have this profile of people that will have high triglycerides they'll have small dense ldl and, and a lot of it and they'll have low hdl and and that's typically a consequence in particular of fatty liver um, and a feature of the metabolic syndrome and, and obesity. And, and they present a, a different risk profile to, 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 to this other kind of, you know, uh, description of, of, of someone you described for, for that population that there's, there's a lot that needs to be done, but, you know, generally, yes, the LDL cholesterol, the small dense LDL cholesterol is, is going to be an issue. Um, but also in that population now there is a move towards directly trying to target reducing triglycerides as well, whether that's through very high dose EPA, um, in people with fatty liver, we've typically just looked at fatty liver through the lens of sugar. Oh, it's sugar drives triglycerides, fructose increases, blah, 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 blah. And you develop fat in the liver. We, we know from really nice metabolic ward studies and tightly controlled feeding studies but saturated fat in directly increases intrahepatic triglycerides, fancy term for fat in the actual cells of your liver. Um, if we flip over to, so yeah, so just around that, that, that individual may have a diet in the, in the typical Western diet that is high in both saturated fat and sugar and, and is going to require interventions to modify their diet, to increase fiber, reduce both of those, or if one or the other is high, and from a pharma perspective is going to generally not just require interventions to lower LDL, but now is going to require interventions that will reduce triglycerides as well. So if we flip over to a kind of lean individual who is fit and healthy and otherwise, then the question becomes less about these additional complications and more refined in focus LDL cholesterol. So there's a really nice study by a group in Norway last year that really was the first to, to look at a low carb, high fat diet in a population of, of young, lean men who were physically active. Um, and there was on average a 44% increase in LDL cholesterol levels. Well, no, they're not as much of a risk as the previous person we described with fatty liver and all these other kind of additional risk factors. But LDL alone is sufficient to initiate and drive the process of, of atherosclerosis. And in this population, LDL, that elevation in LDL, independent of these other factors, is sufficient to warrant caution. And in this study, it was a, it was a proper low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. They had around 65% of their energy from fat, 30% saturated fat. You know, that's very reflective of a kind of, you know, paleo-style diet that people would be consuming. And the idea that LDL causation is, is a qualified causal relationship has been disproven. LDL causation holds true in all circumstances. It's just the level of risk will be modified. A person with fatty liver and all these other extra complications that we described 
but they are still going to be a cardiovascular risk. And I hear this argument from low carbers a lot where they're like, well, before the dietary guidelines, people were eating these natural fats, they call them. It's like all fats are natural, but you know, whatever. So people were eating these, you know, these, these diets rich in meat and heart disease. And there was, you know, obesity rates were really low in the 1960s. And I'm like, yeah, and people were dropping fucking dead in the street from heart disease. Like what's 50% more heart disease deaths in this period pre-dietary guidelines and obesity? So I think we need to stop romanticizing the 1940s and 50s and 60s from a health perspective as it relates to heart disease because people weren't obese and they were still dying of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease at incredibly high rates. So the answer isn't just eat real food, no? You can't just... <laughs> no. You can't just... no, no. And this is what I don't understand about the low-carb community. What I don't understand is why the general principles about fat composition in the diet just can't be applied in that circumstance. Why does this ideology of animal fat and low carb have to go hand in hand? Why can't you still just focus on, you know, nuts and seeds and oily fish and, 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 and avocado and, and these kind of unsaturated fat-based foods over oversaturated I, I i just i don't understand um and the fairly irrational thinking that goes into justifying why you can eat all the animal fat you want and it's fine if you're like lean and have low triglycerides yeah that that, that is the thing i struggle with because it's like sometimes you're you kind of just want to like mock low the low carb people just because they all right. seem to be like that but at the same time like i don't ever want my perspective on the podcast or otherwise to come across as saying that a diet that is rich in salmon and nuts and seeds and you're eating vegetables and you're having some blueberries and everything that that right. isn't that that isn't an excellent diet because yeah. like you can say, like there's certain i i can't see any reason why one would be concerned um about that being unhealthful yeah. unless you're maybe an athlete and you might no. want more carbs but i mean for health right. It yeah. seems like a great diet pattern. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, yeah. and I, I do know people that, that prefer low-carb diets that, yeah. that do do that. But just community-wide, that's not what's promoted. So low-carb now, in terms of the ideology of the diet, is very much married to a number of narratives about our dietary guidelines being corrupt and wrong. Um the idea that fiber is a conspiracy, like it, it just the levels of ludicrousness that, that this movement adds to its belief systems as time goes on, you know, is, is, is impressive. But um, it's, it's dangerous when it's promoted, not just at the kind of populist, like Insta blogger level, but perpetuated by, you know, legitimate medical doctors, and I also noticed that it seems that the media likes to kind of side in that space as well, just because it has an anti-establishment feel to it. You know, they're questioning the guidelines the government told us and they were wrong. And so, they're, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty simple, you know, narrative based, oh, they were wrong. Here's the truth quote. <laughs> um, so, so I can see its attractiveness. I can see why people latch onto it. Everyone wants to feel part of a movement. But, you know, the reality is um, their arguments are, are really just baseless. 
Yeah. And the shocking thing is that you've actually got like, it's, it's not like it's just, and I don't say just to be derogatory. It's not like it's just GPs or surgeons or stuff that have this perspective. It's actual cardiologists that, that sometimes promote right. the idea that, yeah. we should, that we should be. And sometimes they're the loudest voices, unfortunately. Um, right. Yeah. But, but yeah, but yeah, so, so yeah, it, it is interesting. And I think it's, it's something that it kind of goes back to uh, scientific thinking in general and how a lot, a lot of these kind of conspiracy theories and anti-establishment kind of perspectives, which I can empathize with at times. Um, they, they often come in a package. You know, I saw in the low carb community, they were the same people who were shouting about coronavirus and saying the government right. was trying to suppress you and, and track you, right. and, you know, all, the, yeah. all those sorts of things. Just to give you a vaccine. Yeah. yeah. It kind of, <laughs> yeah. it kind of comes in a package where, you know, you'll have right. the carnivore crowd who are like, I'm just asking questions about vaccines, you know, it's yeah. that's kind of the typical line. I'm just asking questions yeah. and it comes in this big package of we're against, you know, everything that's consensus right. based. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That, pa- that pause there for yeah. a second, but, uh, you oh, said, I was saying, you said, did you, do you know of, yeah. David Robert Grimes. Yeah. Um, I have his book, his he, book there, the irrational ape. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I was, I was on a, the pleasure of, of being on a panel, with him and Hannah Ritchie, who's a um, oh, yeah. environmental. Yeah, she's, she's like really, 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 like runs this site called Our World in Data with a few other yes. researchers, and it's really cool. But obviously, David Robert Grimes has, has really dug into this problem of, of of human thinking and rationality as it relates to vaccines and these other kind of movements. But the point he made on the podcast was that you know that there's research that shows that those beliefs. Do there? They, there's a constellation of them that tend to always run together. And it seems that the underlying cognitive reason for that is essentially kind of arrogance. It's this idea that you know something that the the general population are, are blind to, or they, you know, knowledge that the masses don't, and and it's an arrogance thing, really. That that comes back to. Um, and they tend to they tend to congregate together these various beliefs. And the point he made was that it's you know it's hard not to have disdain for people who essentially you know n- might know that their position that they're advancing is wrong, or at least just have cognitive dissonance about it, but actively seek to promote it to people in a way that they will engage with, believe agree with that particularly as it relates to cholesterol denialism i have I've, I've shifted over the last year to thinking that i i want to engage yeah. with that community and i want to have dialogue and I, I want to have productive conversations and i've realized that they're not interested in dialogue and they're not interested in productive conversations i would rather label them all as the belief-driven ideologues that they are um, but that if you were to do that, you put the back up someone that might just be starting to believe their shit, but, but isn't, is just being drawn to it because they think it's legitimate science. And so the reason that I try and resist just being like this crowd are a bunch of denialist fucking morons. The reason I try and resist that as much as possible is because that are being sucked in by it, that aren't the movement itself but are being drawn to the information because they're convinced of these arguments. And they're the people, rather than engage with a cholesterol denialist, the purpose of engaging with their material 
is not to try and address or convert them. It's for those people listening, basically. Yeah, and, and one, of the, one of the things that I think it kind of came to mind as you were speaking. One of the things I always kind of say to myself as well is when, when I'm engaging in any, when I feel like I'm part of a camp and I'm, even if I'm in the right camp, I think one of the things that people fail to do is that to actually look inward as well, because what can sometimes happen is because you're on the right side of the scientific consensus, let's say you basically mock everyone on the opposite side who's Mm -hmm. operating based on ideology. But then when you ask yourself, how did I come to my understanding? You happen to just be on the right side, basically saying, oh, I believe in science, whereas you've never actually had to go through the process of seeking out information organically. And one of the Mm -hmm. areas that pops up sometimes is like uh, people will say things like I obviously studied physiotherapy. And one of the things people will say is, oh, you know, choose physiotherapy first and trust physiotherapists and that kind of things like blindly. I think it happens in dietetics sometimes as well, where standing up for the whole uh, profession and it's, and it turns out to be this kind of uh, camp based ideology again. And it's like, no, no, I don't want to be part of that either. There are are many problems within physiotherapy and and dietetics and medicine. And I think if you're not willing to accept that there are problems on those sides and the same ideologically motivated people fall into both camps, I think, right. I think that that is an important step in, in right. dialogue as well. Yeah, I think so. And, and for people that are, I guess, more scientifically minded or, you know, have done a medical degree, like what I always try and say, if they are swayed in that, in that direction is if you can truly dig through the current evidence base, if you can read through the two European atherosclerosis society consensus statements, if you can go on the EAS website and watch Chris Packard's professor, Chris Packard's talk about LDL causality, or you watch Brian Ference's talks about Mendelian randomization and you understand Mendelian randomization and you read his research on genomic studies and heart disease, if you can go through all of that and open yourself to it with, with an open mind and come back out the back end, I just don't think that that's possible. If, you're, if you've legitimately approached opening to the available evidence with an open and critical mind, I cannot fathom how a rational, scientifically literate medical doctor or nutritionist or dietitian could come out the back end being like, Nah, I don't think LDL is causal. I, I just, I, I, and so, so what I try and implore people to do, if they're, well, I, I have questions over, you know, this, that, or the other, and they're, and they're legitimate questions. Oh, I've heard this guy talk and like, it seemed very persuasive. I'm like, fine. Assume that you believe this thing now, but approach doing this other research as if you're trying to prove yourself wrong and, and, and see, see if, see if your beliefs stand up through that process. And I find it, really difficult to believe that that anyone could come out that back end still still thinking anything otherwise because the the body of evidence is is so overwhelming that it it really beggars belief as to how someone could look at that and be like nah don't believe it all you're left with is denialism literally all you're left with is i choose not to believe this because it doesn't suit my narrative and my worldview but as far as biological sciences go, and let's bear in mind, I always make a lot of examples, uh, you know, between nutrition and biomedical sciences and why they're different. But it's biological sciences. Like biology is 
complicated. <laughs> and, you know, even if a drug acts through a specific pathway, it also does other stuff and all this kind of, and the reality is we'll never get to a, a level of certainty that you would have in mathematics, for example, that degree of precision. Mm -hmm. So we're left with real, truly scientific thinking in a kind of Bradford Hill causality, multiple lines of evidence. And I, I believe that the body of evidence that supports LDL causality and atherosclerosis is the biological sciences equivalent to the body of evidence that supports that the world is, is, is a sphere. Like it, I, there is no other body of evidence that's that robust coming from every line of evidence from cell culture to epidemic interventions to drug target treatments like it's all there. <laughs> There's no stone unturned. Um, there remain other factors in the cardiovascular risk picture. Sure, we're starting to realize that triglycerides, if they're still elevated when you've lowered someone's LDL, are going to give them a residual risk. And yeah, we should get those triglycerides down. We're starting to realize that residual inflammation. Um, we're starting to realize that's probably not much point in bothering with HDL. You know, all of these nuances are still coming out. And I think in terms of the available pharmacotherapy, particularly with the advent of PCSK9 inhibitors, we're on the cusp of a revolution in treating heart disease and preventing heart disease and reducing people's risk of dying from heart disease if they are at risk. And that revolution is largely pharmacological. Yeah. And I think that any movement that stands in the way is you know, a, a nefarious in its agenda and, and, and needs to be, needs to be put to, put to bed. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I actually, like, like I said, and, and I think like you're alluding to, I have, I, I do have a lot of empathy for people who are like, let's say you're a personal trainer or whatever, and you obviously, you don't have that much education in terms of like specific biological sciences and especially not the medical sciences. And you're just kind of trying to figure out what's best for your clients. And you come across a UK based cardiologist who's saying, here's, you know, what you do with nutrition for heart disease. Like there's obviously an element of, oh, I should trust that authority. And then, you know, if you're not being walked through all of the evidence, it's very difficult to decipher what is true. Right. You know, right. That's, that's one of the things that, that I've definitely realized uh, this year studying like pharmacology more that like this stuff is ridiculously complicated. And yeah. like there's, there's layers one, one through five, you know, where right. like, you know, you learn what a drug does and it's like, oh yeah, that's your kind of your introductory uh, instruction on what this drug does. And then the second level, it's like, oh Jesus, it does all this other stuff. And then the third level, it's like, oh shit, they never mentioned that, you know? <laughs> and, and that's, that's me as a first year. And like, that's, you're going right. to continue to evolve and evolve and evolve. And yeah. the reality is that it's very difficult to distribute that information to people in an Instagram post. And that's why I do have a lot of empathy for people, regardless of, you know, whether or not I agree with them, because I know in the past that I've been the person who thought that saturated fat doesn't matter. You yeah. know, I, I can eat it and, it and it's just not a problem. So for people listening, I never want them to think that we're being like elitist or arrogant because no. we have the secrets because I think, you know, it is as much of a problem when people just blindly trust authority as right. when they distrust authority, right. you know? Right. Um, exactly. You know, it's, it's completely correct. And I think it helps that you were able to articulate this. I mean, you know, I, I often get the question, for example, like, Oh yeah, I've done, I've done a lot of um, quite detailed breakdowns of kind of going into each of them. 
and I've had one or two you know, people comment kind of like, I, I just don't know how to, to get to that level of depth with, with, with an analyzer. And I was just like, well, bear in mind that I have been digging into this like a mole since 2012, 13. Like I've eight years of, 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 of digging into this specific question while having the guidance and an input of to point my thinking in a certain direction and otherwise. So you know, this wasn't just because I picked up the paper and had some second laser eyes and was able to see, you know, oh, look, look at these included studies, <laughs> didn't have the right exposure comparison, you know, like, so it's, 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 it's arriving at a point that comes from a, a, a depth of study of a specific topic. And, and, and that's not something for, again, for that reason that I try and, and have the, the, the patience for the people who are listening, not the person who, you know, the, the cholesterol denialist I'm engaged with some sort of conversation with, or the paper that's come out that's full of woo crap that I'm trying to like break down for people, as tempting as it is to attack the authors, because it's the same people every time. Yeah. It's more like I want to be able to demonstrate to someone who's read this paper and gone, wow, this, this must be it. I want to be able to demonstrate to them why it's, why it's not what it says it is, for example. And I don't expect people who have in a general sense to, to be able to do that for themselves. I absolutely don't, you know, in the same way that, you know, like if my car breaks, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not popping the hood and being like, oh, yeah, it's like I'm wheeling it down to the mechanic, yeah. <laughs> like, you know? So, so it's, 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 I think the problem with nutrition, I eat three times a day, for example, we all eat three times a day. Let's just say three. And you multiply that out, like nutrition, diet, food as a, as a variable that we interact with every day exceeds every single other facet of our life. And so it's that element of legitimate kind of the, the populism of nutrition that makes it a different uh, field to try and navigate this idea of kind of expertise and, and, and not on this on the spectrum thereof. We just assume, we default presume, like, you know, you don't stargaze at night assuming that you're on a par with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like, um, but, but people do this with nutrition. So they, that false equivalence you mentioned at the start, that's a problem. Um, and so people assume that their, their favorite in, Insta influencer who's, who, who says that they speak for the science, uh, you know, it has the same level of, of, of kind of insight into that science as, you know, a, a cardiovascular researcher who has spent 30 years publishing in the field. That is where we get into an extra layer of, of problem, <laughs> I think, when it comes to nutrition and, and also just the, the diet heart cholesterol skeptic hypothesis, generally speaking. You have plenty of people who have no affiliation to the field, who've contributed nothing in terms of primary research, who are the definition of, you know, the, those memes about like, I've done my research and it's like someone in their basement with like the computer on versus like someone in, in, in a lab, we like pipetting something into a, into, into, a, into a test tube. And, and that, that's a problem. It's the people listening on the fence that we really need to be thinking about. How can we stop people joining this movement 
versus how can we convince the people in the movement that they're morons? Because that's, that's human behavior. We're never going to convince them of anything. So we just need to let them, hopefully, and this is kind of going to sound bad, but like, I, you know, I think with the, the human condition, it's not, not really the worst thing to say if we contextualize it. I genuinely hope that a lot of them get atherosclerosis because it will, you know, it'll just be like, well... There was a bit of a freeze there, but I got the gist of what you were saying. <laughs> but, but yeah, like I think, yeah. I, I think ultimately like for, for, for the listener, like ultimately I think one of the messages that, that was like, that hit me quite hard when I, when I heard it was, it was from Nassim Taleb, but basically what he said is he said, you don't want to win an argument. You want to win. And if you're thinking about winning in terms of life, like you're ultimately concerned as an individual, as a user of this information about mitigating risk of cardiovascular disease. So what I would do is think, all right, I need to put that goal ahead of my feelings, okay? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, like a lot of these narratives related to, you know, eating animal foods and stuff like that, like they, they hit at your feelings at a kind of like a primal level, as I said, of like, yeah, you know, we're against the establishment, you know, we eat meat, you know, this is, this is masculine or whatever. Um, not that there's no women involved in, in, in it at all. Some of the most prolific kind of low carb people in the UK um, are women. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, but yeah it, it is a kind of a typically male thing. Like, you know, I want to eat lots of meat. But basically, like what I would say is try to put your end goal of mitigating cardiovascular risk and ahead of the feelings that come in the interim, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. um, I think that's ultimately what you want. Like none of us want to die of yeah. cardiovascular disease. No, no. Like, I mean, of, of, the, of the diseases that have a preventable component, like, you know, that this, this is one that is still the main cause of mortality in a lot of, in a lot of our countries uh, in the Western world, rising in the developing world. So, you know, uh, it's, it's something that needs to be taken seriously at a population level and at an individual level. And what the kind of cholesterol denialist, like low carb, high fat, can you, by doing all those things, you won't have a risk. And that's the thing. They're tiptoeing around the fact that there is no way of saying that following that dietary pattern over the course of a lifetime or, or as your habitual diet is not going to increase your risk. All they can say is it might not versus a body of evidence that says if you do these things and if you're doing those things with your diet you may still be a cardiovascular risk like i said going back to the genetic component if you're in a country like ireland you you may not have a bad diet at all and you may be doing all of these things and still have high cholesterol and that's where the you know place that we're at now with available pharmacotherapy is, is is fantastic so you'll still be able to reduce risk at that point um but, you know, I, I, I don't want to develop heart disease. <laughs> and we have a body of evidence that says that eating, eating plenty of kind of colorful foods and polyphenols and vegetables and fruits and, yeah, dark chocolate is going to benefit my heart disease risk, is going to reduce the level of cholesterol in my blood and the opportunity for that cholesterol to contribute to plaque in my arteries. Why wouldn't I go with the known known versus the unknown unknown? To quote Tom Grumswell. <laughs> so, so with, with that with that in mind, you kind of just alluded to it there. But what for people listening? Then, right, they're thinking, okay, you know, I'm on board. 
I want to, I want to improve my diet, or maybe they already have their diet in check. A lot of people listening to this will probably be, you know, their personal trainers, they prep their meals and all that sort of stuff already probably. But what do, what, what does a, a heart healthy in general from a, a blood pressure and from a, a lipids and just reducing cardiovascular risk, what does a heart healthy diet look like or not necessarily a day of eating, obviously, but what do, what are the typical features of diets that yeah. seem to be health promoting? So, uh, Oily fish crops up everywhere, whether you're in Japan or the Mediterranean. But the nice thing about oily fish, particularly because we're becoming concerned with the environment as well, is the minimum effective dose is really not that much. And so that's very achievable. It doesn't have to be salmon, which can be more expensive. I mean, sardines, cans, anchovies, um, herring, trout, mackerel if you're in ireland like you've got mackerel everywhere (laughs) um so there are options and those um recommendations are quite solid and and very achievable i think in a country like like ireland um aside from that then you're talking about having unsaturated oil the the two best oils for that kind of composition would be all extra virgin olive oil and rapeseed oil um, which and people used to be concerned about olive oil for cooking on a pan uh, because of the heat, but we know actually that the polyphenol content of, of olive oil actually protects it at higher heats. So you don't really have to be worried about cooking with extra virgin olive oil, although you could cook with rapeseed oil instead because there isn't as distinctive a taste. Some people genuinely don't like the taste of cooking with olive oil, which is fine. So um, they would be two examples of, of oils. Oils like flaxseed oil are generally best used as kind of dressings or otherwise. Um, nuts, the research on nuts and cardiovascular disease risk is really robust. If you are making substitutions in your diet now from an environmental perspective, there's also an additional benefit, it seems, to soy from the isoflavones as well. Um, and then different types of seeds, whether that's ground flax. There's also a fiber component. So we're getting really into the food matrix, like with flax, for example, if you're adding, say, flax to oats or overnight oats or porridge, you know, you've got the fiber content, you've got the unsaturated fat content, uh, which is polyunsaturated fat primarily, and you've got like flax lignans and all this kind of other stuff. Um, and so for fat composition, really, you're talking about oily fish, oils that are rich in omega-9 or and or omega-3 and nuts and seeds and you can also then consider dietary fiber intake as well which will have an effect on lowering LDL cholesterol so that's where you're getting more into kind of carbohydrate foods as opposed to just the fat composition of the diet legumes beans oats uh, particularly the, the beta-glucan content of oats, um, a type of, of kind of fiber and an effect on reducing LDL cholesterol, um, you know, and, and other fiber-rich grains and whole grains. And collectively then, you know, between the high fiber content and the fat composition, you know, that's generally considered the, the kind of macronutrient profile of a heart-healthy diet. The additional factor then that someone would, would want is flavonoids or polyphenols, which have multiple effects on on improving vascular function so you're talking about dark skin berries other fruits uh, vegetables dark leafy greens um dark chocolate heart health is is having you know uh, a ribeye once a week um going to detract from that no you know is having some chorizo in an omelet going to detract from that no um is having you know 
other kind of foods if, is having butter on your toast going to detract from that no just don't have two tea, tablespoons of it in your coffee you know so it's like those foods in and of themselves are not harmful it's the total diet pattern that you really want to focus on and that's going to be a diet pattern that's predominantly enriched with unsaturated fats from marine and plant sources that is high in fiber and that contains a lot of polyphenols from dark skinned vegetables and fruits yeah, and, and I think I think what's quite nice about all of that is that I, I'll I'll ask if you agree, but um, it seems like that type of diet pattern is like almost universally helpful when you look at the other targets of nutrition in terms of colorectal cancer or insulin resistance mm-hmm. or other things that people th- think of be, as being targets of nutrition. It seems like that's kind of healthful in general, you know, not just yeah. a cardiovascular perspective. That's the thing. I, there's, there's a nice, as complex a science as nutrition is, there's this really nice simplicity that you can bring it back to where the composition of the diet will have multiple benefits across a range of health outcomes, particularly what I'm quite interested in with, with the heart component and the foods within the brain. So the, the neurological components of a healthy diet that may prevent against dementia are broadly similar to the dietary recommendations for for heart disease um and and that's something we really need to take seriously because you know alzheimer's prevalence is expected to triple by 2050 we don't have any pharmaceutical interventions for it unlike cardiovascular disease so prevention really is important for that and you're absolutely correct like there is a massive overlap what's also nice about human diet is that Although a lot of the foods that I recommended there would be on our supermarket shelves, those characteristics that I described, predominantly unsaturated fat content, high fiber content, plenty of polyphenols, can actually be achieved in multiple diet patterns in different parts of the world. So the food sources that contribute to those characteristics can differ and differ, differ quite widely. But the actual characteristics themselves remain pretty constant, whether you're in you know, Central America, Costa Rica, or Sardinia, or Okinawa, or, you know, these kind of blue zones area. Um, so yeah, I think I think that gives people most of, I think most of what they need to, to know in terms of actually taking action here. One thing I did just want to ask in terms of thinking about people who, right, they're listening to this, and maybe they're already in the stages of maybe they've had an event or they've got established cardiovascular risk factors. Um, is there, is there, well, there, it's kind of two questions, but firstly, I know that pharmacotherapy can reduce the progression, not just reduce the progression, but ex- actually regress atherosclerotic regress. plaques. Mm. So is that, is that something that is achievable through nutrition? Is that something you see? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. So. No. So, 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 so here's the thing. You can dramatically reduce your general risk of a secondary event when you're in secondary prevention with diet. And we've seen that with the Leon Diet Heart Study, for example, which is a really great study in the kind of mid nineties. And, you know, quite dramatic reduction. The percentage probably reflects the follow-up time what wasn't as, wasn't as long. But yes, if, you're, if you've had a heart uh, attack you've had a cardiovascular event you can dramatically reduce your risk of a second event but we're talking about time to second event changing that we now know is the target to get to 
for secondary prevention that will not just prevent a second event, but as you said, will actually reverse the buildup of plaque in the arteries, reduce it by 50% or more. That level of LDL cholesterol is unachievable through any dietary or lifestyle <laughs> intervention because that level of LDL cholesterol for secondary prevention, which is 30 milligrams per deciliter, the, the last time any LDL cholesterol was when they were in the neonatal phase was literally about one to two years of age. And once breastfeeding starts, once, once milk fat's introduced, then it goes beyond that 30 gram, 30 milligram per deciliter threshold. So that threshold that is needed to get to, uh, to, to have a level of LDL at which we see a reversal of plaque buildup is unachievable through diet. It doesn't mean you don't do all the dietary stuff too. You do. You just make sure that you're on a step, whatever that just puts you on, that gets you to that secondary prevention threshold that the EAS have, have established. Yeah, I, and I think that's something that ties ties in well with, I suppose, the way that you describe the role of nutrition here in terms of being cumulative life lifelong exposure as it relates to atherosclerosis because ultimately your goal should not be to be in your 20s you know someone like myself who's thinking i'll deal with that when i'm older you know i'll deal with that in my 30s or my 40s or my 50s because ultimately the way that atherosclerosis works the lesions become more and more complex and the chances of reduction, whether that be through pharmacotherapy or nutrition, basically reduces as the decades go on. Um, so when you're thinking about nutrition, I think the message would be if you're in your 20s, it's something to consider now b yeah. before, before later, pretty much. Right. A hundred percent. Like the fact that plaque can start to build up from the second decade of life is something that makes me really wish I had this information when I'm 17. Yeah. <laughs> you probably, you, you wouldn't have acted on it though. You were bulking. You're no, like, yeah, bro. yeah, I was, I was all about the gains, bro. <laughs> like two half pounders on a yeah. right back, you know. <laughs> but actually, well, just one, one, one final question on that, since I said bulking, like I think one of the things that, that people probably forget when they're involved in, in weight training and the kind of bodybuilding world is, you think you're you think you're almost immune to poor health right. effects because you, you track your calories and like <laughs> lift four times a week for an hour. Uh -huh. you know? yeah. um, so like, is this something you see as being something that like you even if you're trying to to gain weight or lose weight or you're controlling your calories to confirm this? These are all things they should still be concerned about. None of those variables that you mentioned do really anything to LDL cholesterol levels. Mm -hmm. Like the, we know the variables that impact on LDL cholesterol. Lifting weights is not going to, the magnitude of change in LDL cholesterol from exercise and even weight loss is, is minuscule. So as far as non-pharmacological interventions go, the, the impact is diet and the issue is elevated cholesterol and cholesterol can be elevated, LDL cholesterol can be elevated if you are young, if you are lean, if you exercise, 
Yeah, I, I actually found the exercise information quite depressing, to be honest. Because yeah. <laughs> nor- normally, like my expectation going into reading exercise research in any area related to health, I'm like, there's going to be huge effects. It's going to yeah. be amazing. And then you look at the LDL stuff and the lipids and I'm like, oh, damn it. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, but, exactly. but obviously, n- not to downplay it, because ultimately blood pressure and everything else is still related to yeah, yeah. heart disease. And, 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 and the re- like, it just boils down to the, the mechanism by which we clear LDL receptor and it's just simply the fact that exercise like for example with blood glucose you exercise you lift weights you improve your insulin sensitivity your ability to uptake glucose into a cell doesn't even require insulin if you've done you know a certain threshold of like resistance and stimulation to that muscle cell we don't have the same equivalent from exercise exercise doesn't make the LDL receptor more responsive to increase in cholesterol so your cholesterol levels just don't really change that much so yeah, you're, you're right. There are myriad benefits to exercise across a range of health outcomes, including... Yeah, we were actually even discussing it in one of the previous episodes. There was, there was recent evidence saying that, you know, being, being well-trained in terms of like anaerobic fitness can actually, it can actually reduce your risk of even just the reperfusion injury of having a heart attack. So even if you have a heart mm. attack, it affects you less just because you are fitter, um, which you're is fitter. Quite, quite interesting. Yeah. So yeah, but, um, as, as, as we always say in, in a lot of these podcasts, and as I know your message is, Alan, the overall goal should be a healthy lifestyle pattern as well as a healthy mm. diet pattern. So, you know, things mm. like sleep and stress and drug use and alcohol, all these things also come into the equation. Um, so ultimately you want your healthy diet pattern to be layered on top of that. So um, with that said, Alan, you've obviously produced a number of uh, really useful resources uh, in terms of Sigma statements and other podcasts. So if people were trying to learn more about this topic in particular, where would you, where would you refer them to? Obviously you've got your own site as well for, for professionals. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, I've dug into this. Um, it depends on what level. So on, on my site, I've done a number of video kind of lectures digging into the actual meta-analyses. I think for a broad overview of the diet-heart hypothesis, the lipid-heart hypothesis, and the relationship between the two, the three statements that we produced for Sigma Nutrition, which are freely available on the website, are where I would I would send anyone that's kind of interested in making a cup of coffee and sitting down and, and, and reading probably one at a time. Each of them is, you know, kind of in the region of like 7,000 words, yeah. give or take. But, um, you know, they're, they're kind of 45 minute reads and there's a lot to digest. But that, that's really where I'd start. They were sequential, you know, anyone even with no grounding other than the podcast that they've listened to today uh, you know, we'll go there and we'll, we'll get a really good understanding of, of, of where we're at with all of this. Yeah. And I mean, for, for people who are coming here from triage content previously, you'll know that it, well, if you are subscribed to our newsletter or if you're in the Facebook group, we did actually share Alan's statements as well as previous podcasts that you've been on Alan, along with loads of other resources from the EAS um, mm-hmm. and other places. So, I mean, if you are interested in that, you can find those on our website and I'll just link them in the description, but is there anything else that you'd like to make people aware of Alan in terms of your own site or, or other things that, that you're working on? Um, I mean, yeah, so the, my site is alineanutrition.com and it's just undergone a nice facelift and it's very much more for, for people who are listening who are either, you know, PTs, 
fitness professionals or medical or nutrition professionals, it's very science focused. So I always deliberately say that it's not a lay audience necessarily, yeah. unless you're, unless you're scientifically literate from a different discipline and just have an interest in nutrition. Um, and we do a weekly in-depth breakdown of a study, particular study. And there is also periodic into detail on a specific topic or an overarching topic um, that we do regularly as well. So I think for people interested in, in nutrition as a science, understanding the actual science better, we go into a lot of things to do with methodology and, and stuff like that. So it's more for geeks than lay people for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good resource. <laughs> Savage. So we will finish the podcast there, guys. That's alien, aliennutrition.com. Yeah. And um, we will, I'll link up to all that in the description box. So Alan, thank you for being here. And guys, thanks for listening again. If you did listen to this episode and you thought, hey, you know, there was some terms in there I was unaware of. I didn't hear this atherosclerosis thing before. Go back to the previous episode. We discussed all that. We discussed how it's related to heart attacks, etc. Um, and the previous episodes have discussed all the cardiovascular physiology. So make sure to check those out as well.